This is section 71 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 71. Alta California, February 1867. Alta California, February 27, 1867. On board steamer Columbia. At sea. December 20th. Five days out from San Francisco. The fearful storm the first night out came near foundering the ship, and it did succeed in making everybody seasick. It stove in the forward bulwarks, and flooded steerage and forward cabin with water, and amid a wild rush of floating boots and carpet-bags, miners from Washoe and California, and webfeet from Oregon, who had never prayed in their lives before, perhaps, knelt down and did the best they could at it on short notice. Isaac for three days afterward most of the ship's family brooded in sorrow and seasickness in their berths, and it took them all of the fourth day to get up a tolerable degree of cheerfulness. Today, however, Brown, Baker, Stribling, Smith, Kingdom, Hercules, Isaac, and several of the ladies seem about restored to their natural selves. However, to say truly, Isaac has been his natural self from the beginning. His vanity, impudence, obsequiousness, and utter imperviousness to insult trench upon the wonderful. He started in very confined quarters in the second cabin, but by sheer and persistent labor with his seductive tongue he has already worked up to a seat at the purser's table and the choicest stateroom on the upper deck, and without extra charge. He writes cards for a living and came on board with a pack ready written and elaborately decorated with the familiar old tiresome flowers cupids and birds of unknown species for half the officers of the ship and was surprised to learn that nautical etiquette forbade those gentlemen to accept of presents from passengers he offered captain waxman all the names i use for ship passengers captain and all are fictitious a meerschaum pipe bogus and was utterly confounded at its non-acceptance. Broad-shouldered, kinky-haired Isaac receives each addition to the list of convalescent passengers with his stereotyped complacent smile, and forces upon him a luncheon from his stock of bad foreign sausage, good-tasting Limburg cheese with a death-dealing smell, and execrable Dutch herrings, all of which conduct looks kind and considerate. It really does— but it certainly must mean business. He probably knows what he is about. The weather is beyond all praise. No seasick passengers may hope to resist it long. It is so soft and balmy, and so grateful to lungs accustomed to the frequent fogs of San Francisco. The whole promenade deck is sheltered from the sun by awnings, and it is delightful to march up and down the breezy deck in procession and smoke, or sit on the benches and look out upon the hills and valleys of Mexico. The Captain, Midnight Have been listening to some of Captain Waxman's stunning forecastle yarns, and will do him the credit to say he knows how to tell them. With his strong, cheery voice, animated countenance, quaint phraseology, defiance of grammar, and extraordinary vim in the matter of gesture and emphasis, he makes a most effective story out of very unpromising materials. There is a contagion about his whole soul jollity that the chief mourner at a funeral could not resist. He is fifty years old, 
and as rough as a bear in voice and action, and yet as kind-hearted and tender as a woman. He is a burly, hairy, sunburned, stormy-voiced old salt, who mixes strange oaths with incomprehensible sailor phraseology, and the gentlest and most touching pathos, and is tattooed from head to foot like a Fiji islander. His tongue is forever going when he has got no business on his hands, and though he knows nothing of policy or the ways of the world, he can cheer up any company of passengers that ever traveled in a ship, and keep them cheered up. He never drinks a drop, never gambles, and never swears where a lady or a child may chance to hear him, but with all things consonant with the occasion, he sometimes soars into flights of fancy swearing that fill the listener with admiration. He is, who knocked? Me, let me in. The ship lurched. I unfastened the door, and the person named Brown plunged in head foremost. It was thoughtless on my part. He stove in the middle berth and started his scalp. Well, what do you want, Brown? Here a chapter of blasphemy is omitted. Why, the old man's going to cross the Gulf of Tehuantepec Christmas Day, instead of going down shore in the quiet waters, as he's been ordered. It will throw this ship more double somersets than you can see in a circus, and I know the old man's idea. He means to get up a starchy Christmas dinner, and then hold her out four points, and all the paperweights in America couldn't keep it on a man's stomach. The Gulf of Tehuantepec is the Hatteras of the Pacific. It always blows there, and is more or less stormy out from shore. But so deep and inscrutable a mind for strategy as the captain's dark design implied, as imputed to him by Brown, never reposed in his honest, ingenious head. While I was explaining this to Brown, I heard the captain's hoarse voice shout, "'Rouse out the parson, and order the first cabin aft!' Of course, we turned out to learn what such an unusual order meant at the solemn hour of midnight. In a few minutes there was as many of us in the captain's apartments as could find room. MARRIAGE OF THE RUNAWAY COUPLE The old man was sitting in his armchair in great state, and his swart countenance and his whole bearing frowned with a pretentious dignity. "'Order up the convicts!' They came and stood before him, a very young man with a surprised look on his face, and a blushing, frightened young girl of fifteen, with tears flowing fast from her pleading eyes. "'So, youngsters, you've been running the blockade, have you? You've slipped your cables and gone to sea when nobody was on the lookout? And you've been sailing under false colors. You've been letting on that you're married, and you ain't. And now you say you're going to splice as soon as you get to where you're going in New Jersey.' This sort of doing ain't going to do in my ship. Blood and wrath, I'm outraged. Giant hands. The captain stood up and uncovered. All others did the same. Stand by, parson. Stand by for a surge. Steady. So. Let him slide into the joys and sorrows of matrimony. Slowly and distinctly the clergyman asked the questions, while the witnesses looked eagerly on. As the ceremony closed, the captain took up its parting injunction and repeated it, with grave and deep-voiced impressiveness. Aye, lads, them whom God has spliced together, let no man put em asunder. Amen. The minister prayed, then blessed the couple, and all the guests shook hands with them and wished them well. The witnesses signed the certificate, 
the marriage was entered on the ship's log with marvelous ceremony and we were all about to depart when the captain rose up solemnly and addressed the bride and groom in a few words of homely eloquence words which he probably honestly considered absolutely necessary to the due completion of the marriage rites the captain's speech young people you're all right now no more dodging no more shirking the revenue no more smuggling no more sailing under false colors you can fly your flag from the mizzen peak halyards now where all men may see it and sail where you will on the broad seas your papers are made out correct and nobody can ever overhaul you any more it's best for you the way it is you love one another i see that we all see it every man and every woman was sent into the world for some foreordinated purpose or other they ain't going to carry it out cruising round single and packing off from this place to that place and from that place to t'other place never taking root anywheres and never having any set aim in this life or hereafter the world's got little enough fair weather in it as it is splice and make the most of it sail in company and help one another when one's aground t'other's there to help him off when one's stove t'other's there to save him when one's dismasted and drifting ashore t'other's there to lend him an anchor up canvas and away and a happy voyage to you the wind is fair now and you can carry skysails riles stunsails every rag you've got but by and by it'll be on your quarter then a beam and finally a head but hold your grip don't mind it it ain't every gale that founders a ship you'll have sun on the line and ice at the pole you'll have calms that aggravate you and headwinds that drive you back you'll have storms that'll sweep your decks as clean as a desert but stick together hold your grip and stick together and by and by when your voyage is up you'll ride safe at anchor in a haven where calms nor storms nor breaching seas can ever distress you any more scandal december twenty third gossiping has begun scandal is in full blast and i wouldn't put that in there if i was you mr brown the matter is none of your business it is none of your business i repeat but as long as you've mentioned it why wouldn't you put it in because it ain't any use because you've as much as said it before because you've said that some of the women are out and healthy and don't anybody that knows as much as a clam know that whenever a woman is out and healthy she's going to start in and make trouble mr brown no man can sit in this stateroom after making such a shameful remark as that go oh certainly that's all right i expect maybe i'm wrong and you're right anyway however it was old slimmons that made me make the mistake she was the first one out and she said old slimmons with it say miss slimmons brown it is more respectful well what did she say what did she say why there is not a solitary passenger in the ship but what that double-chinned old pelican has blackguarded she says awful things about that pretty girl that sits at the middle of the purser's table and she says that poor crippled gray-headed old grandmother in the second cabin is no better than she ought to be and she says she knew that innocent old fat girl that's always asleep and has to be shoveled out of a room at four bells for the inspection and always eats till her eyes bug out like the bolt heads on a jail door knew her long ago up on the san joaquin 
and knows the clothes she's got on now she's traveled in eleven weeks without changing says her stockings are awful they're eleven weeks gone too and when she complained of the weather being so hot old slimmon said why don't she go and scrape herself and then wash it would be equal to taking off two suits of flannel and she blackguards the choir that's been started and says if they come serenading those girls in her end of the ship any more she'll stop their caterwauling almighty quick she swears she wishes she may never flutter her tongue again if she don't scald em you bet she'll do it too and she says all the women in the ship are secesh and are going to washington to hatch up some deviltry against the government and she's going to show them up in the hangtown thunderclap of freedom because you know she's a correspondent like you a sister correspondent as you may say and my but she's savage on that old rooster that's religious she says if ever a man had a hang-dog countenance on him it's him and moreover she's satisfied he stole a bottle of cologne out of her room yesterday when she let him go in there to borrow her prayer-book she calls it cologne you know but it's gin and and well i i believe that's all except that she says you was very sick last night it seemed you was almighty sick everybody said but if she ain't blind and a born fool to boot you was as drunk as the piper that played before moses there you are now maybe you don't believe it if you don't you just come and hear the old sage hen cackle for yourself good day poor brown he is a man of no tact he always leaves just as he is about to become interesting to me i have no more curiosity than other people but still i would like to know what else that venomous old hag has been saying about me but we are all catching it we are all being carefully dissected men women and children slimmons is the chief operator but she is not alone everybody takes a hand in it fires his charge of detraction and winces under the return shot it serves one good purpose at any rate it makes things exceedingly lively sometimes and keeps the passengers in material for conversation always alta california february twenty fourth eighteen sixty seven steamer columbia at sea sunday december twenty third last night was magnificent cool balmy breezy an easy sea on and all things so flooded with moonlight that each wave of the ocean each rope and spar of the ship and each face and form about the decks were almost as plain to the sight as if it were noonday the six individuals who sing think of it only six persons out of five hundred who make the slightest pretensions to vocal talent organized themselves into a choir and practiced several hymns until a late hour for we are to have religious services to-day after that they sang dog tray and marching through georgia and what is home without a mother and other venerable melodies and a few wretched volunteers joined in and completed the villainy of the performance home without a mother may not amount to much but there is no use in aggravating the thing with such a tune as that and the idea of resurrecting that infamous dog tray at this day that choir sang everything they ought not to have sung except one and i tremble to think the surroundings would yet suggest it i refer to the song called roll on silver moon if they had attempted that outrage i would have scuttled the ship 
I can stand a good deal, but I cannot stand everything. I would rather perish than lose my reason. Altogether, ours is a very poor choir. I will remark here that although I hummed a tune occasionally, and whistled some, I was not requested to sing. This is a beautiful morning, and all parties seem as light-hearted and happy as children. In fact, the pastimes of the gentlemen on the promenade deck in the shade of the awnings, for their own and the ladies' amusement, have an entirely boyish cast about them. Two men are playing mumble-peg with absorbing interest. A large party are trying to see which shall be able to walk ten steps blindfolded and place a hat on the compass. A colonel, who greatly distinguished himself in the war, is trying to sit on a champagne bottle with feet crossed, arms folded, and thread a darning needle without falling over. The bottle lying on its side, of course, and pointing straight astern, while he faces towards the ship's head. He has just accomplished it, after the ninth attempt, and raised a boisterous round of applause, some consolation for the bursts of laughter that greeted his failures. All are engaged in this sort of nonsense, Isaac, the Israelite included, except the youth they call Shape. With hat perched jauntily on one side of his head, and hands thrust into his coat-pockets, he promenades the deck fore and aft, and admires his legs. They say he is a little cracked. I don't know. The idea may have originated with Miss Slimmons of the Thunderclap. Being a little under the weather, I have intruded into the captain's room, along with the veteran Sleet, a skipper of thirty years standing, going home on furlough from his ship. The forenoon is waning fast. Enter Captain Waxman, sweating and puffing from overexertion, and says he has tore up the whole ship. He scorns grammar when his mind is seething with business. Has tore up the whole ship to build a pulpit at the after compass and rig benches and chairs athwart the quarter deck and fetch up the organ from below and get everything ship shape for the parson. And the passengers, said he, as soon as they found they were going to be sermonized, they've up anchors and gone to sea, clean gone and deserted. There ain't a baker's dozen left on the after-deck. They're worse than the rats and on. Here, you velvet-head, you son of Afric's sunny climb, go forward and tell the mate to let her go a couple of points free in Honolulu. Me and old Josephus, he was a Jew, and got rich as creosote in San Francisco afterwards, we were going home passengers from the Sandwich Islands, in a brand-new brig on her third voyage, and our trunks were down below. He went with me, laid over one vessel to do it, because he warn't no sailor, and he liked to be convoyed by a man that was, felt safer, you understand. And the brig was sliding out between the buoys, and her headline was paying out ashore. There was a woodpile right where it was made fast on the pier, when up comes the biggest rat— as big as any ordinary cat he was, and darted out on that line and cantered for the shore, and up come another, and another, and another, and away they galloped over that hawser, each one treading on t'other's tail, till they were so thick you couldn't see a thread of the cable, and there was a procession of them three hundred yards long over the levee, like a streak of pismires, and the Kanakas, some throwing sticks from that woodpile and chunks of lava and coral at them, and knocking him endways every shot, for—but do you suppose it made any difference to them rats? Not a particle. Not a particle on earth, bless you. 
They'd smelt trouble. They'd smelt it by their unearthly supernatural instinct. They wanted to go, and they never let up till the last rat was ashore out of that brand-new beautiful brig. I called a Kanaka with his boat, and he hove alongside and shinned up a rope and stood off on for orders, and says I, Do you see that trunk down there? I, well, yank it out of there and snake it ashore quicker than you can wink. Lively now. Solomon the Jew, what I say his cussed name was? Anyhow, he says, What are you doing, Captain? Doing? Why, I'm taking my trunk ashore. That's about what I'm doing. Taking your trunk ashore? Why, bless us, what is that for? What is it for? says I. You see them rats a leaving this ship? She's doomed, sir. She's doomed past retribution. Burnt brandy wouldn't save her, sir. She'll never finish this voyage. She'll never be heard of again, sir. Solomon says, Boy, take that other trunk ashore, too. And don't you know that brand-new beautiful brig sailed out of Honolulu without a rat on board, and was never seen again by mortal man, sir? It's so. As sure as you're born, it's so. We shipped in an old tub that was so rotten that you had to walk easy on her main deck to keep from going through, so crazy, sir, that in our berths, when there was a sea on, the timbers overhead worked backwards and forwards eleven inches in their sockets, just for the world like an old wicker basket, sir. And the rats were as big as greyhounds, and as lean, sir, and they bit the buttons off our coats and chawed our toenails off while we slept. And there were so many of them that in a gale once they all scampered to the starboard side when we were going about, and put her down the wrong way, so that she missed stays and come monstrous near foundering. But she went through safe, I tell you, because she had rats aboard. After this marvelous chapter of personal history, the captain rushed out in a business frenzy, and rushed back again in the course of a couple of minutes. Everything's set. The passengers are back again and stowed, and the parson's all ready to cat his anchor and get under way. Everybody ready and waiting on that bloody choir that was practicing and squawking and blatting all night, and now ain't come to time when their watch is called. Out again, and back in something like a minute. Damn that choir! They're like the fellow's sow, had to haul her ears off to get her up to the trough, and then had to pull her tail out to get her away again. But rats! Don't tell me nothing about the talent of rats. It's been noticed, sir. Notes has been taken of it, sir. And their judgment is better than a human's, sir. Didn't I hear old Ben Wilson, mate of the Empress of the Seas, as fine a sailor and as lovely a ship as ever rode a gale? Didn't I hear him tell how seventeen years ago— when he was laying at Liverpool docks empty, empty as a jug, and a full Indiaman right alongside full of provisions and corn and everything a rat might prefer, and going to sail next day, how in the middle of the night the rats all left her and crossed his decks and went ashore, every one of them, every bloody one of them, sir. And finally, it was moonlight, he saw a muss going on by the capstan of that other ship, and he slipped around and there was a dozen old rats laying their heads together and chattering about something and looking down the forward hatch every now and then, and finally they appeared to have got their minds made up, and one of them went aft and got a scrap of old stunsels half a foot square, and they bored holes in the corners with their teeth, and bent on some long pieces of spun yarn, made a sort of little hammock of it, you understand, and then they lowered away gently for a while and stopped, and directly they begun heaving again, 
and up out of that forward hatch, in full view of the mate, who was watching him all the time, up comes that little hammock with a poor old decrepit sick rat on it, all gone in with consumption. And they lugged him ashore, and they all went uptown to the very last rat, and that ship sailed the next day for India, or Cape of Good Hope, or Summers, and the mate of the Empress didn't sail for as much as three weeks, and up to that time that ship hadn't been heard from, sir. Drat that choir! I must go and start him out. This sort of thing won't do. End of section 71